And my first day of training, you guys, was the day of the Oklahoma City bombing. And I'm sitting there in class and they came and told us what happened and we all ran upstairs to our hotel rooms and watched on the news. And then I went back to class and I'm like, well, okay, let's do this because you know, if this kind of stuff is going on, we gotta, we gotta be ready. And I kid you not, two weeks later, I'm sitting across from an Oklahoma City firefighter and he was telling me about how he went into what was left of the Murrah building and he found what was left of the daycare. I followed him through his whole career. He retired as a battalion chief three years ago with zero problems. So this, this technique is awesome. I always say that if you are a therapist and you're going to do this on, on first responders, you need to get the first responder protocol down because a lot of the EMDR trainings now are kind of geared towards, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a soccer mom and I saw a bad wreck about a month ago and it really upset me. And you know, you guys, <laughs> you're like, what? <laughs> and so we, your trauma is way worse. And when we open Pandora's box, a lot of it all comes out. You, you guys are exposed to the worst of, of people and the worst days of their lives. It's a hit after a hit after a hit. And, uh, and with the psychic battering, it's just the continuous just hit. And then you throw on shift work and lack of sleep and changing shifts and rotating shifts. And you're on night shift, but now you're going to the 40 hour CIT class. So you're on days and then you're back to nights. And then, you know, your family is like, you know, is complaining because of your shift work or because of your job. It's, it's this continuous, just, it's just hitting after hitting after hitting to the brain. And it just wears first responders down. There's so many challenges. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assistant Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal, and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome back to the Bridge and the Divide podcast. Pain is inevitable and suffering is optional. First responders are always trying to seek out and improve themselves, whether it's higher education, the newest tactical firearm training, learning the newest trends in drug interdiction. But there's one area I believe we need to continually improve on, and I really don't think we do a good job of, is mental health and wellness. As we all try to seek out new and better ways to improve and be a better version of us, our guest today strives to helping veterans and first responders with 30 years of experience. She deployed to the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. In 2001, she deployed to New York City. She was in New Orleans for Katrina and to Dallas in the aftermath of July 2016 attack. She is recognized nationally, noted author with numerous books dealing with mental health, PTSD, with military and first responders. It is my great honor to welcome on Dr. Tanya Glenn. Dr. Glenn, you had the stage. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for an awesome introduction. I'm delighted to be here. And I, I really, any chance to, to spread the word about caring for first responders is, is a huge gift for me. Thank you so much. I, it took me a week to get that intro prepared. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's well-deserved. Your, your, your bio and your, your resume is, it's 10 miles long and it's, impressive and I can't thank you enough for all the assistance you've given all of us over the years and what you're going to continue to do. It's I just can't thank you enough for that. Doctor, in your many years of seeing first responders and veterans and suffering through PTSD, have you seen a shift in people seeking out help? 
You know, I have, um, I'll tell you when I first started my career, I likened it to pushing a boulder up a hill. And uh, most recently in the past, you know, five to 10 years, uh, we've seen the shift. And I think that enough first responders have come forward, enough first responders have been notably hurting, um, and enough first responders have met their demise. And I think that ultimately um, the, the result of all the pain and suffering of so many people has finally, finally uh, caught wind and made it okay to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, to talk about treatment, to talk about prevention, and to, uh, to get our leaders engaged in finally providing good resources and programs to help them. So it has shifted and I love it because finally it's, you know, it's now on, on the forefront. Um, while it is now on the forefront, there is a little bit of misinformation uh, going on, but, but at least we're having the discussion and the dialogue and people are much more open to committing the, the resources necessary to put together good programs for their, for their folks. Yeah, with with the Dallas PD and the uh, Sissy Alster Foundation, we we have a uh, mental health program that we offer uh, mental health therapy confidential uh, confidentially, and we have seen a big uptick really since the July uh, July seventh uh, shootings, and it's a good thing. People are now kind of trying to break the stigma and coming out and uh, and get more involved and, and getting help and recognizing they actually need help. Um, reading reading through your bio, um, there was an incident in 1993 in Waco, Texas. How did that event shape shape you and your mission and to be who you are today? You know, I went home and I watched that go down on the news and like a lot of people, I was completely horrified and I, uh, I couldn't stand it. I was three months away from finishing my master's degree, University of Texas. And I knew that day, I knew I wanted to work with trauma and in crisis intervention, but I just didn't know like the exact sort of focus. And that did it for me. Uh, that day I decided I was, I was on board. I wanted to go to Waco. I wanted to help people like the ATF. Of course I couldn't because I hadn't even finished grad school yet. And I told my professors I was going to do that. They told me I was crazy. So here I am 30 years later, just as crazy as the rest of you. And I love it. I, well, Waco, I did end up with a widow in my practice. And so that's how I was able to give back to, to that event. I, I did have an ATF widow in my, in my practice. And so that was several years later, um, but that's how I was able to give back to that. But it's amazing how you have this one defining moment and it changes everything. And, uh, and I just knew that this was my thing. Well, it helped you find your why, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I was working at a level two trauma center in Austin and I just started to ride and ride with police, fire, EMS. I worked weekend nights. I had a, a side job on the side. Cause you went, when you get out of grad school, you have big student loans. And, uh, and I had, I was building my tiny little practice on the side as well. And so I would switch my, my schedule to weekdays during the week. So I could do my other stuff. And then I'd have to flip back over to weekend nights for my, my job at the, at the hospital. And so on Thursday night to be up all night, so I could sleep on Friday, I would just go ride. And I rode, I mean, just thousands of hours, um, law enforcement, fire EMS, and just got really really sort of into the culture and the terminology. And uh, that is one of the best things I've ever done. I do write about that in my books a lot. I, I kind of get after therapists who think that they can see first responders while they've never set foot into a patrol car or into a fire station. You know, it's, you've got you've to know that stuff. Dr. Glenn, it seems like um, you've done your homework. I've read your book. I read it this weekend. And you've spent a lot of time with first responders, and they have difficult personalities. Is, do you feel like there's pieces of your personality that are similar, that fit in, that can relate? Yes, 100%. Actually, when I was, um, I think it was like halfway through grad school, and one of my teachers, my, my professors, were, was saying, you know, hey, hey, Tanya, you're too type A to be a therapist. And I was like, well, crap. I'm, I mean, I'm only like, I'm halfway through this. And she's like, you know, you need to you need to just bring it back a notch and, you know, and, and not be so like determined. And, you know, and I was like, huh. And so I remember that. And what I ended up doing is finding my, per- my perfect patient population. I am a type A and so are you. <laughs> so, 
Um, I definitely, I, I'm, you know, I'm very straightforward. I'm very direct. Um, I have thick skin and I, um, I love to help people who want to be helped. And I like to, I like to get people through their pain as quickly as possible. And that's the first responder community. I think that my patients, their mantras, you know, fix yesterday. Well, I'm the woman to do that. Let me, let me jump in and help you. And I think that's, that's always been one of the biggest assets of, of, of my career is the personality that I bring. I get it from my mother. My mother was a, um, she was, she's German and she lived in Berlin in World War II. And so she's totally badass. And she is, she created my resilience and she, I think she really built like the woman that I am. Uh, looking back, I see it now at the time. It was just, you know, she was, she was pretty hardcore as a mom, but now I look back and I'm just so grateful for everything she did to, to, you know, install this resilience in me to, to be able to do what I do. Doc, I had a question for you. Um, well, I had a privilege listening to you speak at the uh, resiliency little conference we had in Richardson, Texas. I think it was hosted by the Richardson Fire Department back in 2019, November. Hey, at the beginning of this, you mentioned something we're talking about uh, people seeking some type of help. You said there's a lot of uh, some, uh, excuse me, some of the misinformation out there. What misinformation are you referring to as far as when it comes to people getting treatment and so on and so forth? No, I think the biggest thing is um, the, the biggest thing I see now is, you know, when people talk about like the suicide epidemic and public safety, um, there's they're, they're making everything about trauma. And while there is a lot of trauma, I think what happens when you make everything about trauma in terms of the suicide epidemic, we're overlooking things like poor sleep patterns, uh, poor sleep hygiene, you know, all the, th- all the resilience building things that need to happen. I think that, um, there's huge deficits in our annual physicals for our first responders. You guys, with all of your fight or flight responses, your cortisol is doing all kinds of things to you. Your hormones are out of whack. And I think that when, uh, when PTSD became sort of the, the hot topic subject, everything kind of became about PTSD, but really truly where we need to start is with, you know, your healthy brain and your healthy body and really making sure that we're focusing on the whole picture and not just um, not just trauma. I think with social media is they make they make the suicide epidemic about trauma. And again, while there is a lot of it, I think that we also have to look at you know when people aren't sleeping and when their you know, their chemistry is off, their hormone, hormones are off. Your brain does some really wacky stuff to you, like like tell you to kill yourself. And so we have to look at the, the big picture and not just make it about about trauma. No, and I'm glad you mentioned that because, as you know, there's there's more to it than just sitting down and having somebody say, hey, I'm suicidal. Uh, when you first go in for some type of panel, they're probably going to take a blood panel of you to make sure your vitamins are up to par, your hormones are at certain levels, you're not deficient in something else, and, and it goes more in-depth than that. And that's why you and a few other doctors that I know of that I really enjoy hearing talk and, and teach because there's show there's more to it than just – hey, I'm feeling suicidal, or maybe I have a problem. But your problem could be the residual of a larger problem that people have overlooked, including your own personal physician, that you just have no clue, That especially the seep, uh, having some form of, of uh, sleep problem and uh, what that does to a body. And I don't think most people know, especially those that work a deep night schedule, right, those that work on a deep night shift. You know, they work that for years, but they are deprived of so many different things that it causes them all kinds of mental fog and whatnot. I mean, some people, I'm sure they deal just fine with it, but I mean, that's that's good. And I'm glad that you mentioned that. When you think about, you know, like if we take someone to the ER and and they appear like psychotic, well, we're going to do lots of blood draws to see if they've taken something right before we before we call it like psychosis or a psychotic break, like a mental health disorder. We're going to see if there's a physical reason And I think a lot of therapists forget that, you know, that's actually a question on a licensing exam in order to rule in any physical mal uh, rule in any, sorry, in order to rule in any mental health maladies, you have to rule out all physical ones. And a great example is I had a police officer who he felt like he was having anxiety attacks is what he called it. And he said, you know, I don't understand. I love my job. I love my life. I love my family. And so while I was scheduling him, I asked him to go to see a physician and it turns out he was low vitamin D, low cortisol, low testosterone, and hyperthyroid. And all of those combined, first thing the physician said, all of those combined will manifest as anxiety. 
So he didn't need me, right? Because he he needed to, to get all that fixed. And so that's a really important piece is that we look at we look at everything. And it's um, there's a lot of a lot of pieces of the puzzle to the human body that we need to consider as we go through, you know, healing, healing our warriors. Yeah, that's a good point. You have to look at everything because everybody's different. Their chemistry and makeup and how they and how each individual is affected by any whether it's a, tr- a critical incident or just a day-to-day wear and tear of this job or, or the, t- the task that we do. Doctor, now have you changed your, your approach with, first resp- with responding to all of these nationwide critical incidents over the, over the years? Everything's ever-changing. How have you changed and evolved as, as, with all these different experiences you've had? I think the biggest thing is um, I've learned to really like start where the first responders are, you know, in in Oklahoma city, there was such a push for the critical incident stress debriefings and, you know, people, people need time and space. And they, I always, the way I teach people now is to start with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is like a, it's like a pyramid. And at the base of the hierarchy of needs is food, water, clothing, shelter, and safety. And we start there and we start to heal hearts and minds through our actions of providing water and changing gloves and pulling splinters out of fingers, because that's what people need initially. And then as people move up the hierarchy of needs and there's the more psychological needs that start to happen, that's when we really get in. And, and as soon as people feel like, okay, I'm ready to address my psychological needs, the focus now in my world with my practice is prevention, prevention, prevention. So as soon as someone's ready to address the, the psychological cognitive stuff, we, we get in and we mitigate it as quickly as possible. So we start where people are, we bring them to safe, safety and as, as much health as we can. And then when people are ready to, to, to talk about whatever it is that's happened or to address the trauma, I really like to get in very quickly and, and do prevention. Um, we work hand in hand with peer support teams um, across the country and, uh, and I absolutely adore our peer support teams. I consider them an extension of my, my practice. And the peer support team are so good at identifying when someone's really ready to deal with something. But that prevention and that mitigation is the key, in my opinion. Like, we don't sit around and wait to see if someone's going to get post-traumatic stress disorder. Let's go ahead and address that and, and mitigate it. Well, speaking on your uh, peer support programs, you have quite the reputation for going to agencies and actually setting up these programs. Uh, what is your process and your recipe for success on these? Because I've had I've had quite a few people reach out to me. We they heard we were going to have you on, and they wanted me to ask you about this. Yeah, awesome. I'm so I'll talk about peer support all day, every day. Um, so so what do I? So here's here's kind of where I started. Uh, in Oklahoma City, uh, we were doing the CISDs, and the police department told us very quickly that those were not going to work. <laughs> they were like, do not put cops in a circle. Do not make us talk about things. And I'm like, yep, I see it. And so I kind of floated around the country, and I was in Tucson, and I was working with the Border Patrol in the aftermath of the Brian Terry murder. And so Brian Terry was one of their BORTAC agents. He was he was one of their snipers. And um and if, if you look that up, you'll find a whole host of information about Brian Terry. So I'm, I'm working with their SOG and, um, and I, I'm riding along, getting rapport going and getting to know the guys. They were very traumatized. It was a very difficult time for them. And one day we're riding out and we're outside of Tucson and we stopped to fuel up. And I ran into a Border Patrol agent who was also refueling. And he told me that he's on the peer support team. And he said to me, he's like, hey, when are you going to come spend time with us? And I said, well, invite me. And so they did. They invited me to a peer support class in Yuma in August. It was awesome. (laughs) It was like living in an oven. And so uh, I got to see their model. And I really, at that point, I knew like this, this is a great model and it works very, very well. It was born out of desperation. They had multiple suicides in 2008. That was the birth of their peer support team. So what I did is I took the best of the Border Patrol peer support team training, and I kind of molded it to be more sort of fire EMS and, and PD friendly. And so what I do, it's a it's a three day training. Um, before we ever get to the training, though, I, I wrote a book. It's called I've Got Your Six, and it has sample policies, a sample application. It has sort of a, an overview of the kind of team members that I'm looking for. 
Um, and it has uh, basically everything that you need to just set it up initially. And then we train and I train real hard. Uh, I teach people, um, we educate the team members on how to educate and normalize people's reactions. Um, I teach them how to listen. I teach them how to not fix. I teach people how to not interrupt. <laughs> and so a lot of times they go home and their spouses are like, why are you listening to me and not interrupting? <laughs> and so they, it usually starts a conversation. And so, um, and, and by the end, what I tell the team members is that you have the tools now to go do this. You will always be nervous. You should always be nervous because the day you decide that you've arrived, you should not be doing peer support. And, um, and we really, we really get into all the skill building that they need. Day three also covers group interventions that do work which doesn't include sitting in a circle. And, uh, and then I explain how to do those. And that's the model that I developed that's in my, in my first book. That's amazing, Dr. Glenn. Um, I feel like a lot of this is, comes after the math, after there's already some issues going on. If we sent you out to our police academy and say you had 10 minutes, can you give me a quick checklist that you could give recruits a way to keep their mental health in check of things that they can do. Yeah. For, for, for 10 minutes. We, talk, we talked about sleep, but what are some of your other things? Oh yeah. So if I had 10 minutes and so if you're giving me 10 minutes, right? So if, if I had 10 minutes to talk to your recruits, I would tell them that um, after bad calls, it's normal to replay uh, those calls pretty hardcore for the first few days. But by seven days post-incident, we want that thing, that call as though it's starting to fade and bank in your long-term memory. And by 14 days post-incident, we want that banked in your long-term memory. If at 14 days, it is not banked in your long-term memory and you're still replaying it, you smell it, and you're taste, you can taste it and you're nightmaring about it to get help. And then I would flip over and talk about resilience. And I would, I would encourage them to start small, hydration, nutrition, rest, and exercise. And then we go into your family, your faith, your friends, and your hobbies, your life outside the job. So if I had 10 minutes, those are the two most important things that I, and I'd say in my brief, which is actually two hours, I say, these, these are the most important things I want you to remember. It's the one week mark and two week mark after a nasty call. And it's, um, and it's the, the resilience building through your life and having a life outside the job, because at the end of it all, you know, what happens when, when you hang it all up, you have your life outside the job. Yeah, that's important because I don't think a lot of uh, first responders, they can't see themselves past this job. And that's something that I, I think all of us need to prepare for, including myself. Doctor, can you tell the listener what firepower resiliency is? I know you're big on that. I want, I want you to explain it for the listener, please. So Firepower Resilience, it's a, it's a brand new presentation I've put together. Uh, we're putting a brand new documentary together on Firepower Resilience. So uh, the definition of firepower is the capacity to deliver effective fire on a target. And so my belief is that Firepower Resilience means getting it right and restoring the health and the well-being of all of our first responders in a timely manner. So hitting the target and making sure it's right. So the upcoming um, documentary, which will be out in December, it's, it's, going to, um, it's going to highlight four first responders who had absolutely awful, horrible events happen to them and how with the combination of peer support and my team, we were able to get in very quickly and basically, basically mitigate uh, their traumas. So we're talking, you know, one person had EMDR day, on day four post-incident. Uh, one person had EMDR while he was still at Bentop Hospital. I stood over his hospital bed and did EMDR. And so I'm talking about like, this is kind of like resilience on steroids, but I didn't want to call it you know, resilience on steroids. So I thought firepower resilience because it's effective fire on a target. Like let's, let's hit it right. Let's hit the bullseye and let's do the very best we can instead of like, Hey, you okay? Yeah, I'm good. And okay, well, let me know if that changes. Cause that's simply not enough. Right. So this, this uh, documentary is going to introduce the concept of firepower resilience and how quickly we get in to mitigate and prevent some of the really nasty stuff that could potentially happen down the line. Yeah, you're, you kind of hit on it. My, I was going to talk about the mitigating and preventing the possibility of PTSD because getting in before the incident is what you're about. You want, to, you want them to set basically a a template for themselves, right? 
to, to grow from initially? So at our practice, we, we really focus on number one, um, customer service. Number two is the education. It's like that pre-incident inoculation. Hey, this, these are normal responses to stress and here's what you do about it. Um, and then number three, the, the trust in us to come in very quickly to work through whatever it is that's happened so we can mitigate that. Um, and that's, that is, that's a win all around. Dr. Glenn, you, you mentioned EMDR. We have a lot of our listeners that have no idea what you're talking about. Will you explain it to us and then give us an example of somebody that it's helped? Absolutely. Um, so, so EMDR, thank you for, for asking, uh, is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And honestly, in my opinion, it's the biggest tool we have in our toolbox. And what it does, it's a technique that we actually replicate rapid eye movement, which is when you process trauma from the last 48 hours, but you're awake and alert and in control. It's not hypnosis. We don't put you under a spell. And what it does is by replicating the rapid eye movement is it gets your brain to move the trauma that's stored in the frontal lobe, which is why you're replaying it. And we get your brain to open the synapses in the frontal lobe and process and download and move those images into your long-term memory. So what happens with the call is it goes from like sitting in your face and replaying all the time to becoming this fading distant memory. And then we notice the triggers go away and the nightmares go away and people get on with their lives. So an example I'll give you. So my first day of training, I actually flew to Baltimore to take this class. And I, at the time I wasn't even a believer hundred percent. I was, I was really skeptical and my first day of training, you guys, was the day of the Oklahoma City bombing. And I'm sitting there in class, and they came and told us what happened, and we all ran upstairs to our hotel rooms and watched on the news. And then I went back to class, and I'm like, well, okay, let's do this, because, you know, if this kind of stuff is going on, we got we to gotta be ready. And I kid you not, two weeks later, I'm sitting across from an Oklahoma City firefighter, and because we deployed up there, and he was telling me about how he w- went into what was left of the Murrah building, and he found what was left of the daycare so he was the first person I did EMDR on. And that at the time was firepower resilience. And I watched this transformation. He had really good fading because he was my first patient ever to do EMDR on. I followed him through his whole career. He retired as a battalion chief three years ago with zero problems. So this, this technique is awesome. I do. I, I always say that if you are a therapist and you're going to do this on on first responders, you need to get the first responder protocol down because a lot of the EMDR trainings now are kind of geared towards, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a soccer mom and I saw a bad wreck about a month ago and it really upset me. And, you know, you guys, <laughs> you're like, what? <laughs> and so we, your trauma is way worse. And when we open Pandora's box, a lot of it all comes out. And so we have a very different protocol for, for first responders. And so I always, I always encourage therapists to get more training to do this on first responders, because once we open your floodgates, we gotta, we gotta be able to contain it. So, so the process is amazing. I love doing it. Um, I have people who come in from across the country. We do two day intensives. So we'll have a, you know, a police officer or a firefighter who will come in we, and we hit it all on day one and spend pretty much the, the better part of you know, a day with them. And then on day two, we do um, the follow-up and really this cleans up about 95% of it. It's all the heavy, heavy lifting is done. And then I can pass them off to a therapist back home who maybe doesn't do EMDR or isn't, isn't as savvy with the, with the public safety population. And, um, and it's just absolutely phenomenal. That's amazing. Um, and we're talking about first responders. What if a first responder hasn't been in a traumatic incident but is carrying trauma from childhood, say uh, sexual abuse or physical abuse? Is that something that would be effective as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. That was actually one of the first studies I engaged in as an EMDR trained therapist was, it was uh, childhood sexual abuse. And I was in the group that did the, got the patients got the EMDR versus the control group that didn't. And uh, the group that got it was way, way, way better. So frequently we do have, you know, there's, there is, I've noticed a really high rate of, of pretty gnarly child abuse for a lot of our first responders and so when they come in, you know, they, a lot of times they don't even realize why certain calls bother them or, you know, or get under their skin so much until we get into, you know, their childhood. Now it's not really our style to be like, well, tell me about your mother and tell me about your father. Cause most therapists like they want, you know, all of that. And we we always start with wherever the first responder is, but if they want to go to childhood, we can, and we do. 
and it is it is intensely effective for that. I, I've actually went through uh, some sessions of uh, EMDR therapy, and it did. Uh, I had an effect, especially with the dreams. And an earlier episode, uh, Chris Webb, uh, he couldn't. He didn't. Have, he had so many so many good things to say about you, and also EMDR, and it unlocked a portion of his brain, and he didn't really realize, realize it until he went to sleep, and he started having these really weird, vivid dreams, and I experienced the same thing. Um, it, it it's a it's a powerful experience. I had a quick question for you. I think because I, I think the individuals are going to listen. I think some will associate themselves in some form or fashion. And others will will refuse, right? They've they're they just refuse to believe that there's anything wrong with them. And it doesn't mean everybody has to have something wrong with them. But when we look at uh, the uh, mind, you know, I think one thing that a lot of people deal with, and it's just probably age, uh, an age perspective, what would be like a mental fog and so on and so forth. Is it can you <clears throat> not necessarily PTSD, but just just a generalized broad spectra of the first responder trauma that you have seen? Can you give like certain ailments that people may recognize or notice? And so when they hear that, they're like, hey, maybe I'd, I can't associate with something. Or is there any particular list? I know there's a gamut of them, but I, I don't even know if that's a fair question. Can you answer that or is that not fair? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, the, the biggest thing, the most obvious one is usually when your family members talk about how you've changed and it's not necessarily for the better. That's a big one is, you know, you're your significant other or spouse really kind of picks up on your energy and they'll indicate like, Hey, that something's really different. Like your sense of humor, your energy. I think the biggest thing we see with our first responders is they just feel so tired all the time. And, um, and of course that may be fatigue from the job, but you know, trauma takes a lot out of you too. And living, you know, with, with certain things, just bothering you or triggering you. I think that um, the, the biggest thing to notice is that, you've changed in your outlook, your perspective, um, how you view society and people think so often you guys deal with just the really negative side of society and you miss out on, on the good, the good side and you no longer see the good people who love you. Um, and I think that, that over time, what you notice is that you're, you have less energy, you're more irritable. You're, you, you feel like you're sweaty all the time. You don't feel good. You don't, you don't, you don't have quite the zest or, or the, you know, the step that you used to. And then, you know, the, the family members pointing out things as well. And it doesn't mean you have PTSD. It might mean you have burnout. It might mean you just have some, some unresolved calls that you just need to process that aren't necessarily PTSD. But I think that the, the biggest thing is to notice that like, we just feel different. And when you are you're, you know, using coping mechanisms that maybe aren't so good if you're, you know, if you're drinking too much, if you're, you know, engaging in risky behaviors or, you know, what I call survivor high, which is kind of, you know, pushing the limits on things. It's, these are all things that you, you may not see, but your loved ones will see. It's, it's important to, to just pay attention with that, to those things. Dr. Glenn, uh, in your book, you say it is imperative that first responders receive help when going through psychic battering. Can you tell our listeners what psychic battering is and give me like an example, like some kind of self-talk that we hear in our brains? Yeah. So psychic battering is the, the, just the continual pounding of people's worst days. I always say, and when I, when I give my uh, trauma and resilience class that no one calls 911 because today's a good day. You guys see pain and despair and sorrow and death and violence and chaos and destruction, and you see horrible things happening to children and innocent people. And you, you guys are exposed to the worst of, of people and the worst days of their lives. And so it, it's just, it's like, it's a hit after a hit after a hit. And it's so easy to forget that there's happy, healthy people who, uh, who, you know, abide by the laws and pay their taxes and really appreciate you. And, uh, and with the psychic battering, it's just the continuous just hit. And then you throw on shift work and lack of sleep and changing shifts and rotating shifts. And you're on night shift, but now you're going to the 40 hour CIT class. So you're on days and then you're back to nights. And then, you know, your family is like, you know, is complaining because of your shift work or because of your job. It's, it's this continuous, just, it's just hitting after hitting after hitting to the brain. And it just wears first responders down. There's so many challenges. Of course, now, you know, 
since COVID kicked off, it's, it's psychic battering just amplified. And so these are all the many things that, that, you know, that our folks need to just have an opportunity just to kind of refuel that internal fuel tank so they can nurture their souls. And that's, that's what psychic battering is. Doc, in your book, First Responder Resilience, Caring for Public Servants, you say the first session is critical. Why do you believe that and how do you handle that? So um, every, almost every patient that calls us or emails us, they have picked up the phone a hundred times or they've started that email a thousand times. And when they finally hit send, it is nerve wracking. It is very hard to sit in someone's waiting room knowing that you're asking for help. And, you know, and if you've never been to therapy, you have no idea what to expect. And you, you feel like, you know, you're worried the therapist can read your mind, which we can't. And you're worried that, you know, we're going to, we're going to have a horrible gut wrenching discussion and, you know, all that stuff. And so everybody comes in with these, these, these preconceptions about what it is that's about to happen. They're nervous. I mean, it's, you know, I've done it sitting in a waiting room about to talk about your crap and it's, it's pretty scary. And so um, that first session, we, uh, we work really hard to call our people back right away. And if we don't get an answer, we leave a message, we send them a text. We, we work very diligently to get people in within three days of their first call. And so that way there's kind of that no like waiting around with, um, with the actual first session. Um, if, if I don't have a client before, um, before that new person, I'll get them in quickly. And, uh, you know, we, we honestly, we're waiting, we're waiting for them to come. We have everything ready. We get them back as quickly as possible. I try as hard as I can when I have a first time client to not schedule someone right before them, because if there's ever a time to decide, maybe I don't need to do this. It's when you're sitting in the waiting room waiting. And so we, we, uh, typically try to not schedule someone the, the session before a new, a new patient, and then as soon as they walk in the door, they're straight back. And so um, that way we don't, we don't, you know, scare anybody or make them sit in the waiting room for too long and decide not to, not to do this. Our office is very, um, it's uh, not like a typical therapy office. We have all kinds of cool stuff on the walls. Um, we, at our practice, we also have um, an extra door, a side door. And so that door is for our law enforcement officers who are involved in high publicity, critical incidents. Because, you know, if you're involved in a shooting or you're involved in something that is, the media is all over, you don't want to be seen. And so we give them a code to that door and they come in the side entrance and just mm-hmm. wait for us there. So that's that's the kinds of stuff that we do to increase the likelihood that people will, will really just come in and feel comfortable. They have to feel comfortable. And in that first session, we, you know, we try to develop as quickly as possible what I call a plan of attack, which is technically a treatment plan. But we call it the plan of attack. And so they know that they're on a path to healing and that there's steps to get there. And we're not just going to be like, oh, welcome to therapy. And we're going to spend, you know, 18 months talking about one thing. We're on, we're on a mission. And so I really try to develop a plan very quickly and give people a sense of how long I think it'll take, um, give or take. And, uh, and so people have a sense of where we're going. Dr. Glenn, how do we recognize progressive desensitization? How do we recognize that? So what, the, what that actually is, progressive desensitization is something that we do after EMDR. And so, for example, like if you're involved in a shooting um, and it's a horrible shooting and we would EMDR the shooting and then we would take you out to the range. Or, for example, when, um, you know, someone's involved in a really nasty wreck in the middle of an intersection, we do EMDR and then we go drive through the intersection. Or a flight nurse who's involved in an incident, we do EMDR and get on a helicopter and go fly. So that's actually what that is. And so what we're doing is we're, we're mitigating all the stress and anxiety about being back in the, in the place or the moment that caused the trauma. And that, that's what that is. So it's, I call EMDR plus progressive desensitization. I call them the one, two punch. Can you tell us about somebody that that specifically has helped? Can you give us a story so others can relate? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so one of my well-known uh, progressive desensitization, because I, I use it in my training, was a, a flight nurse for an air medical uh, company. They hit the side of a cell phone tower and it tore off the left skid. And they ended up having to land on a stack of, of firefighters mattresses at the San Antonio airport. And she was like, she was way freaked out. I mean, she was beside herself and um, she was not good. And she took seven shifts off and I knew she's going to quit her job. 
And so during her seven shifts off, which, you know, in a 24, 48 world is about a month. Um, I was working with her and I told her, um, we're going to do EMDR. And she told, and I told her, I said, we're going to do EMDR at the base. The, the company put the aircraft out of service. And the only other person at the base at the time was the pilot, just kind of waiting on us to, to be done. And I told her, I was like, bring your flight suit. Cause after EMDR, we're going to go fly. And she's like, that's, that's insane. I, I cannot know. You're going to wave your fingers in front of my face for a couple of hours. And then I'm going to want to go fly. And I said, yes, <laughs> she's like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. And so Sure enough, she showed up, she brought her flight suit, we did EMDR, and as soon as we were done, she's like, well, let's go fly. So we went up in the air, the pilot took us around, he's like, let's go look for new towers and wires, because this, this area is growing so rapidly, and we went, so we got a landing in, and we took off again, and we headed back to the base, and the pilot's like, I'm just going to fly a few approaches, if you don't mind, and I'm like, totally fine, we're in the back, we're high-fiving, taking selfies, and she told me mid-flight, she's like, you know I was going to quit my job, and I said, I know. And actually she just retired from the company. So, um, so that's one where, you know, I just, just love doing that. Love doing, that. just get back to the, the thing that caused the trauma and overcome it. Let's, let's not have you go out to where it happened. And the first time it, you know, you go out there, you're on a call. I want it to be off duty so we can just go just work through it and breathe and focus and, and get your skills back and get your confidence back. Awesome. That's all. Yeah. That's awesome. It's, <clears throat> Just helping one person, and you've helped God knows how many. There's probably people you've helped that have sit through your seminars and read your books. You don't even know. You know, you're, it's, it's, it's so impressive, and, and I, I can't tell you how excited some of our ATL therapists were. They're excited. They're, they can't wait to hear your episode uh, once we air it, and they've actually sent me some questions for you, and they've sat through your uh, seminars and and Melissa McLemore, giving her a shout out. She owns all of your books, and yeah, she's she can't. She's I think she's got a, a crush on you, but <laughs> it's okay. Stalker. Right. <laughs> that is so sweet. Thank you. I, no, I am thrilled that other therapists are finding that useful. Yeah, very useful. Um, I want to ask. I want to get your thoughts on moral injury. Uh, I, I just recently watched a video uh, that you put out, and former DPD uh, SWAT operator Chris Webb, he he dealt with a death of an in, uh, infant hostage, and he spoke on that. Can you explain to the listener what what moral injury is? Absolutely. So the moral injury is when something happens and you um, cannot get there fast enough, you can't change the outcome. It's the, the sort of the responsibility that you take on when things go wrong. So the, the biggest moral injury, the term came from, of course, the military. So for example, when insurgents use women and children as human shields, um, no value for women and children, obviously, in that situation. But our, our armed services, of course, have high value for saving women and children. And when you put an AK in their hands and you tell them to point that AK at the Marines, you know, it's it, the options are are pretty much just one. And so the, the moral injury is, you know, I had to take these actions that the outcome wasn't what I wanted. They're not that's not consistent with my morals. And so what happens with a moral injury is um, you, 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 you feel it, you take it on, you're, you're ashamed, you're embarrassed, you're horrified, you're angry, you're hurt, you feel betrayed. Um, and it, it actually, a lot of people are diagnosing moral injuries as PTSD, but you have to be very clear and differentiating. With a moral injury, you won't have the living and the, the flashbacks, but you will have all of the emotional distress. And so when first responders are going through academies and going through training, you're, of course, trained to change an outcome or create an outcome that's positive. This is how we save lives. This is how we intervene. And when you can't get there, what happens is it logs this feeling of helplessness. And I will tell you, helplessness is the number one emotion that gets processed in EMDR in our office. And helplessness is very foreign to you all because you all are trained to be in control and maintain control and stay in control. You're in charge. It's your scene. And when you can't get control, it feels very, very horrible. And so the, the moral injury is that I, I could not get there fast enough and I could, not, I could not change this outcome. But before help, what happens, unfortunately, in the mind of a first responder who's got a moral injury 
is the self-talk is not so much, I couldn't get there fast enough. It's I failed or I sucked or I'm horrible at my job or I'm a horrible human being. That's what the brain does. The brain and any sort of any sort of mental health problem, it always goes to bad. And so the self-talk of first responders with moral injuries is really, really awful. And when we do the EMDR, what we get people to see is that, you know, it's not that you didn't do your job. It's that the outcome was already pretty much done by the time the, the numbers 911 were hit on the first phone, you know? And so it's the ability to put that into perspective is huge, huge for, for, our, for our first responders. Doc, when you talk about educate, normalize, what, what does that mean to you? So I, um, I, and I love doing the brief that we do the trauma and resilience brief. I, I start with fight or flight. I joke that the F word is feelings. We don't use that word. We use the other one quite a bit, but not feel. Yeah. <laughs> and we you also use fight or flight quite a bit. Right. So I start fight or flight is the foundation. And we describe the chemistry of the stress response and what happens to the brain and the body. And then I weave fight or flight through the four types of stress. So we acute delay, cumulative, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And I make it about the science of stress and physiology. And this is the language of first responders. And the whole time, as I'm pointing out all of the awful you know, things that happen in you know, an acute stress response, I'm normalizing all of it. And I think when people hear that, they start to realize like, oh, Oh, that's normal. And here's why, you know, it's, and I, I talk about shunting and I talk about, you know, throwing up and I talk about pooping and peeing on yourself and all the reasons why are all connected to survival. And so um, when we, when we do that, everything starts to make sense. Now, um, the biggest compliment I get from my brief is everything makes sense. Now it all makes sense. And so, so it's important that that first responders have that knowledge and, you know, that's, um, that's what I put in my first book, you know, chapter two is educate, educate, educate. And uh, I think that's a really important thing to do because if, if you don't, then people wonder, they, they tend to think, oh, I'm so weak or I can't handle it or, you know, that kind of stuff. So, so that's what we do. We educate, normalize. Doc, suicide is in, in, in law enforcement and in, in military and uh, really all first responders, becoming more prevalent and it's more talked about can from a therapy standpoint i know getting in first and early intervention is is critical but can you talk about something else that indicators that we could look for because we've lost we've lost a lot of officers uh to suicide you know i i think that where we start is, is we start at the beginning. We start with our recruits. We reach out to the people we care about that are already on the force. And we have those discussions. You know, I mean, everybody puts those memes about how I'd rather listen to your story than attend your funeral. But that really needs to be put into action, right? And so I think what we do is, is we, we start to really change the culture so that we know that a lot of first responders contemplate suicide. And unfortunately, a lot of them, you know, a lot of them, it's complete suicide. And so where we start is, is with the culture that it really truly is okay to reach out. And what has to happen is the people who are feeling that desperation have to get good help, but have to be allowed to come back to work. To me, I think the biggest prohibitor of people reaching out is they're afraid they're going to lose their job. And so they feel like, well, by the time they're so depressed and their brain is telling them to kill themselves, they feel like it's just a better option to just kill myself because my family and everybody else will be much better off without me. And that couldn't be further from the truth. So I think departments have to put their money where their mouth is and really allow officers to receive help, to heal, to recover and come back successfully. And I think when that happens, you're going to have a lot more people who are going to be a lot more honest about where their, where their mindset is. Yeah, Doc, we were just looking at the numbers on uh, Blue Help <clears throat> for for this year. It's at 106. I mean, that's pretty astronomical, not compared to the years previous, but we're we're really not even through this entire year with a few more months out with the holiday season coming up. I think you touched on a lot, uh, and I'm really glad Joe asked that question about the uh, about the moral injury. I think that's something that all of us suffer, no matter where you're at, whether you're a U.S. veteran or a first responder. And I think a lot of people get tied up and get wrapped up in, especially in our profession. I've seen it in the past where 
uh, therefore, uh, well, with uh, good reason, there is a lot of help for our U.S. veterans, for sure. I've had the privilege of speaking to many of them, and uh, when they go to compare, uh, you know, um, how they are hurt, uh, if you if you ever try to compare yourself to them, most of them will be the first to say, no, 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 you you have it just as bad as I. And, and it's a very hard thing to accept, and it's not a comparison, a tit for tat, or let's see who's got the worst. But I think as first responders, we all forget that um, – it, that we do suffer, we just don't necessarily see it. You may not be in a war zone or have fought your, your way out of uh, a crisis, but at some point in time throughout your career, you've done that on a daily basis. And I think most people forget the second you walk out your door, our bodies go into the red. Most people should be in their defensive mode the second they walk outside their door, uh, especially if you have a take-home vehicle. And not to say not to, then you come home to your house still in the red and you go to decompress and then now you're going to add in some family problems, whether it be divorce, child custody, uh, a death, just no matter what it is or just your own personal grief and now deal with the thought of suicide. And I think uh, I, I'm very grateful that you mentioned all of that and including the peer support. I think the other piece of the peer support is a lot of departments don't want to touch it because they feel like there's some type of liability or some type of legal issue with it. They don't realize that there is training from a guided therapist such as yourself, a doctor uh, with 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 a high education and very great experience in doing such. And a lot of peer support programs fall short. You know, we're trying to kind of create or mock something up with the assist the officer foundation in order to help support. And that's, that's all that this foundation is for. Uh, but, you know, we'll have to steer into that as is, but I think most departments just don't want to talk about it. The wellness piece, um, being able to talk and just like you mentioned too people want to go to a departmental psychiatrist they're they're extremely fearful that no matter what they say is going to be drawn back upon them they would rather go seek outside source and help but yeah i think that's that's great that that you're out there doing what you do and and we appreciate it very much so you and all all the others like you thank you thank you you know um what i always tell first responders um is that you are supposed to be impacted because you're not a sociopath. The first thing that my patients say That's when they start one, to, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you're not a sociopath. And the, the first thing my patients do when they start to cry is they apologize. I'm sorry is the first words that come out of their mouth. And I'm like, don't ever apologize for being a human being. And then I tag on, by the way, congratulations, you're not a sociopath. And then they start laughing. <laughs> so they're laughing and crying at the same time, which is awesome, right? The other thing is, you know, our first responders come in and they'll say, Tanya, I didn't have to storm through Fallujah. You know, I, I didn't have to go to combat. And I'll tell you what, our, what you said, they say, well, you know, I only had to do it for a year. These guys have to do it for 25. And so it's very interesting to see because everybody kind of comes in with, you know, their own kind of reference point. And, and our veterans are like, hats off to these guys that have to do this for 25 years because they understand what you're going through. It's just your, yours is so much more prolonged. And so it's a, it's a really cool way to kind of bring people's walls down when they say, well, you know, I didn't have it as bad as, um, I always, I always tell them what the other, what the other group says about, about their group. So that's a, it's a really good way to kind of bridge that gap. Doc, I, you know, we're a bunch of amateurs here doing this podcast, uh, for the Sissy Officer Foundation. <laughs> Would, will EMDR cure my stuttering? Can that can that help me get through this? That's the only reason I that's 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 why I want to go through it. So I don't know if there's any of your protocol for stuttering, but you know you keep working on it, right? I'm it's a daily struggle, trust me. And and the listeners know that by hearing me. Doc, to to wrap this up, I want I want to ask you what's next for Dr. Glenn? What do you have on the horizon? To con- that, that you're going to continue to do to help us keep us safe and keep our mental health as best as it can be to, to serve and protect. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm so excited where we're heading. Um, what a great question. Thank you for asking. Um, so at the practice, like I said, we have another a new documentary coming out. That's the sort of the short-term goal. The long-term goal is, um, I have really created a team that uh, will be able to take this practice from me when I retire 
Um, you know, if, if I die suddenly, unexpectedly, uh, someone, one of my team members is in my will to take over the practice. So this continues, but in the past year, year and a half, I have really started to cultivate those therapists to start to travel and do the level of intensity work that I do. Um, and they really are, we have, we have, instead of just seeing patients kind of all day, every day, I've started to, to ask them to step up and do more stuff to do, you know, peer support training, to travel, to respond to crises, to go out at 2 a.m. to the officer who is involved in the shooting and to have those experiences because my goal is to leave my practice to a, a, a team of very, very competent people who, um, who I'll basically hand the practice over to. So that's kind of where we are now is just training, um, training the group to continue on and kind of being a force multiplier now because because I've got, you know, several of them. And so we're headed that direction. We're going to continue to really, really hit the preventative aspect of, of trauma response versus the, well, you know, you know, let's wait around to see if something goes wrong with your life and your brain and your heart, and your mind, let's, let's prevent it. So I think pushing the prevention, um, that's probably going to be one of my next books is the preventative aspects. And I'm also, um, considering doing a book with a, with a combat veterans, that will be a book for veterans. So let's, that's a good stuff on the horizon. Um, I'll probably be 85 when I retire. So. <laughs> hey, if you you're continually helping people, it, 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 that's gonna that's what you're that's what you're about, right? Yeah, I just love it. I do love it, Doc. Doc, that's that's good to hear <clears throat> that you're uh, handing off that torch because as we push forward in the future here, there's going to be more and more people that are going to need that help, and and there's only one of you, and. Uh, so there's there's a few there's a few other doctors I know I wish we could clone, but we can't clone them quick enough, right? So it's awesome to hear that you're going down that road. Yeah, thank you. Doc, how do officers make an appointment? Let me get that information out there. Yeah, so they just you just go to my website, which is www.tanigaglen with two n's, so tanyaglen.com, and uh, on the contact tab there's our email and uh, our office phone number. And so you could call or you could send an email. Um, you are going to hear back really quickly uh, within the day. If you call, you know, if you call at seven o'clock at night, it'll be the next morning. But we uh, we will we will get back to you quickly and we'll get you in as quickly as we can. So it's just super simple. Doc, I think it's a perfect way to wrap it up. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule and meeting with us and. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, thank you guys. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. It was an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, mister. I'll see this all the way through. sun and the moon I'll never give up on you Down when you're lonely I'll pull you up Life leaves you heavy when the going gets tough I'll be your shoulder Together we'll run up from the bottom Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you Hey missus, hey mister, I'll see this all the way Sister, 